Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Welcome back, everybody. And Brent, thank you so much for joining us today. Really excited to have you. Hey, Harry and Eric, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, for, for those who are joining us, as you heard on in the intro, Brent has a new book coming out. And that's one of the topics that we're going to talk about today. Brent, first of all, congratulations on your book. It's getting a lot of hype. We've seen you on the podcast circuit, saw that you have an intro and, and got a lot of guidance from David Mirman Scott as well, which is another name that I'm sure our listeners know. So congrats on all this recent success around your book. Yeah, thank you. It was a, it was a journey, as I shared with you guys in the preview. I People see learn this in the first chapter. I was trained as an academic who pivoted to become a revenue leader. That's a journey in itself, but I had a very academic writing style. And so shifting my writing style, I had to you know, do what I advocate, which is be open to learning, right? Learning new skills and behavior is going to take time. And if you practice, you get better. So it's been a journey, but it's, it's great to have had it come together. And you know, we're getting some buzz out there for sure. I love it. And being trained as an academic too, your your powers of observation, your powers of kind of like recording detail and even citation is is something that's very strong. I'm curious, just diving right into the revenue acceleration playbook, why don't we start with prospecting and some of the the prospecting plays that that you kind of highlight in the book and and talk about a little bit of your perspective there. Yeah. So for us, it all we think about in the playbook, it all starts with value plays, which very simply is how your product drives value for your buyer. And that could be financial and ROI case. It could be, you know, cost savings. It could be a different user experience, a different learning experience, a different internal process or collaboration. It's uh, so we always start with the value plays because it's remarkable when you write down your value plays. You want to map your capabilities to those. Does it drive revenue, reducing budget? But we always say until you can get a buyer to tell you the the value they received. You don't really know if it's valuable or not. What's their quick testimonial, quick te- before and after case? What is the outcome story they would tell you? So map your your current customers to those value plays to really anchor on how you drive value. For, so that's the first thing for us. And, and then you can assign value plays uh, to personas. Because one of the things I think that people, persona is a really powerful concept, but if you start with a persona, you often end up with a mid-stage deal with five different goals around it. If you start with a value play that different personas care about, it's like, okay, everybody's got a different perspective on what it, why it's important to change our process, but you at least have a common conversation. So starts with the value plays. I don't know if you guys have questions on that, then we can jump into how that leads to prospecting plays. Well, kind of a question and an observation. You know, one of the things that we see all the time here at Science, especially when getting into testimonials that I find, you know, I'll just be honest, some of our client companies struggle with is recognizing the motion of why the company that, you know, becomes the testimonial actually chose you and what the discussions were in kind of like that buying process. Understanding that really well and having that as something you can kind of like flip forward into future conversations with other lookalike companies that are struggling with the exact same things and how they went about buying your product or service is arguably some of the most important detail to collect 
for a prospecting motion coming right back out. Yeah, love it. I mean, it, it's an awesome instinct. Every company has their product sell sheet. They have their product battle cards. Most do not have value plays written down that then can be plugged in right into uh right into prospecting or right into early selling. And the reason that's a problem is we, as you guys live in, we live in a really noisy world. Your product is just a blur. It sounds like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I'm picturing the peanuts characters or the adults in the peanuts. Womp, 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 womp. <laughs> well, but the, the value plan, we, we always say the goal of discovery is to get to a buyer success statement, which is based on the value plan. There's only so many versions of what success could be. And we'll get to some specific examples, but your instinct is exactly right, Eric. Write down how your buyers describe value and sell it forward. Because the most powerful selling is around what you've already proven for your customers. You know, it's funny, when you were speaking a minute ago, I was thinking about, I don't think that comes in the form of 20 different features or capabilities. And uh, I want to actually read a blurb from, uh, it's one of the the blurbs on amazon.com describing your book, because I think it, it's a perfect description of what we're talking about here. It says, today's buyers are inundated with sales pitches coming at them from websites, peer reviews, social media, and email blasts. Is it any wonder they're overloaded, overwhelmed, and tuned out? The fact is product-centered pitching simply doesn't cut it anymore. And, and I mean, we've heard that kind of a sentiment from a number of guests and just really understanding that that the product almost doesn't even matter in, the, in getting people's attention. It's about them. It's about speaking about what they care about. So I'd love to know, how do you, you know, we've talked even offline a little bit about all the different groups you've worked with, starting new SDR organizations or scaling SDR orgs. Where do they start? How, when they're trying to look about target groups that maybe they don't yet fully understand that they're, they're trying to learn about further, how do they build a pitch that's about them? Yeah, so let, let's start, let's take an example of, let's take Agenity, which is a SQL analytics platform, right? And basically replace stovepipe analytics with a central way to manage data and repurpose code and all, and all of that stuff, right? So it was basically on this point about value plays, how do we drive value beyond that? Okay, you can write a library of SQL code, but how does that drive value? Well, it means that people can do their work quicker because now they can work from what others have already done. It means I have higher quality because people don't have to reinvent the wheel. It means I get to a business insight 30% faster. Okay, so who cares about that? Well, first, end users, so let's get some of them using it for free. And then as they start to use it, well, their manager clearly is going to want to repopulate to different groups. There's higher productivity. And then as I get higher productivity against different groups, the CDO is going to start to pay attention. The CIO, how do I get to quicker business insights, whether that's on marketing insights, supply chain insights, you know, some type of manufacturing insights. So it starts with those value plays. How do I drive value? And then which personas care about which value? And thinking about my prospecting campaign has to be to an individual persona, anchoring on what they care about. So I'm going to the end user with, this is going to make your job easier. I'm going to their manager with, this is going to make your team more productive. I'm going to the CDO or the COO with this is going to build higher enterprise efficiency and insight. It's the right message, but in every one of those, there's a one plus one equals three. Putting two value message together leads to a better outcome. That's a platform value prop. And it sounds like really what you're talking about there is an account-based strategy that kind of 
is holistic across the board. That's right. That's right. And and so you got to think about under the platform value prop, there's individual value props, but you have to help them see the connection. They're not going to make that connection themselves. They're too busy. They're not thinking about you after they get off the phone, right? So you have to be very explicit in your discovery about, hey, this is was a great experience for you. Would your manager be interested in hearing about others across the group and how that could benefit your whole team? Okay, now I'm talking to the manager. What other managers care? And are there others in the organization that have a digital transformation project or trying to get to business insight? So you got to, in your discovery, help them make that connection around that higher level, but speak to them individually. I love the words that you're using there, help them make that connection. Because one of the things that I think is so hard, especially at the top of the funnel, is helping buyers buy. Especially when we now live in an age where you know, there is no autocratic soul. <laughs> My decision from the top of the mountain decision maker that doesn't consult with their team, doesn't have a consensus purchase process, doesn't involve all stakeholders in making any kind of purchase decision anymore. Is it, I mean, that's just the way of the world, right? That, that is the way of the world. And Harry nailed it is the world has become people that are successful in revenue leadership or sales or commands or whatever. It's all about your buyer. It's not about you, your product, your company. It's all about your buyer. And we talk about authenticity wins. And honestly, that starts right in the prospecting process, right? Which is good questions on, are you working on this problem? Good social proof on, we're working with this colleague of yours internally or externally. We're working with companies like you. So Parsable, right? Manufacturing handheld uh, device, right? That automates a lot of uh, workflows for whether it's quality or um, the maintenance on the shop floor or continuous improvement or production and, and helping with throughput times or shift changeovers, all kinds of stuff it can do. Very powerful platform value prop, but the platform value prop doesn't get an individual quality manager or an individual maintenance manager or an individual environmental manager to lean in. So when they actually built out those persona use cases and started now their prospecting campaigns of quality were, hey, are you working on autonomous maintenance? Or do you have a stuck around standard operating procedures? We've helped, you know, STEMX or this name or that name solve that problem. Could we do the same for you? Would you be interested in a value-added discussion on that? We talk about authentic campaigns as leading with questions, leading with social proof. And if you target each buyer with that, and then you connect for your buyer, how that other areas connect platform value you just do a lot better. So when Parsable implemented this across, you know, first six different personas and going on 10, I mean, literally saw a 50% improvement in expansion pipeline in 90 days. Adding a million bucks to their expansion pipeline just got by going with a very targeted message to each buyer persona, but also being clear that that individual use case connected to a stronger platform value prop. You know, it makes me think of the old famous Einstein quote, assuming it was Einstein, a lot gets attributed to him, but it's the, if I had 50, or if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solutions. And I think that's kind of the approach you're taking here. By the way, when you say authenticity wins for those listeners out there, that is also 
Brent's domain, his website. So if you want to check out information about his book, you have a great URL. I love that authenticitywins.com. So shout out to that. Go find him there. But it sounds like you're a believer in, it sounds like you're a foot in the door guy, you know, bottom up land and expand kind of models, especially when targeting larger organizations. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I would just say, and it goes to the parsable, always encourage multi-threading, right? And because people say, well, I reached out to one and they're going to forward it around. Well, that's even better reason to get better at what's in it for each person. Because look, if you're reading out to the maintenance manager, say we're working on autonomous maintenance and you're reaching out to the production manager about shift line changeover and you're reaching out to the uh, safety manager about how you can reduce incidents different message to each one. And the, and the same thing with agility, right? Back to that example, user message, manager message, different manager messages that might be working with different databases. So if you're personalizing, you should multi-thread and see who picks up the quickest. But 100%, get your, get, get your foot in the door, get your foot in the door with more people if possible, you know, to have more conversations. You know, follow up about the multi-threading concept. There are kind of a couple ways to do that. And I'm wondering what you're a fan of the most. You know, one is to lean on that first foot in the door person and say, can you introduce me to other departments? Who else should I be speaking with? People have various levels of success in doing that. The other is just, we're targeting an enterprise. There's seven different departments we should be talking to or seven different people. I don't care if there's a meeting on their board or not, I'm still getting those other six. So do you like to have the approach of just set all the meetings with all the different people, or do you like to find one and then use them to kind of spider web out? How do you like to do that? Yeah, I mean, and w- w- great, great question. And we'll distinguish between referral selling, which is somebody referred me, and reference selling, which is I'm making a reference to somebody like you. And we always encourage, great, if you got a really strong advocate, it's going to make a referral do it. That's the most powerful. They'll be CC'd or they'll send the email. But reference selling where maybe you're mentioning somebody by name, if I'll give you permission, but you're referencing that you work with them already. Maybe you're part of the procurement stack, right? So they don't have to worry about that. You'd love a conversation around some of the other use cases. Uh, just referencing the value you've already provided, it's a much quicker way to expand. You're not stuck on somebody else's timing. Well, the other part of reference selling that you know is so attractive to to me and to our company when we employ this as a strategy for our clients is boy, it's hard to beat kind of any line or talk track that leads with you know I was just talking to the exact same title you have the other day about this problem. <laughs> you know, I was just talking in my case to other CMOs about this, including CMOs in your industry. <laughs> and and the personalization layers of the onion that get peeled back when you delve into those talk tracks that those references, um, boy, they just they they really raise attention and curiosity right off the bat, don't they? Yeah, no, I, I love it, and it goes back to your earlier comment. I mean, is that really our customers? They don't want to hear from us. They want to hear from their peers that we work with, like us. That's the most powerful testimonial. Is Exactly what you said. Hey, I was talking with other CMOs. So I was talking with other CMOs in your industry. Our experience working with CMOs is they're often stuck on, you know, stubbing their toe on this. Is is that happening to you? Would love to, you know, see if there are ways we could connect you to the work we're doing with those people. 100%. Customer voice wins every time. 
you know, I'd love to know what you think about, we have a lot of clients and a lot of listeners who live in red ocean spaces, whether it's HR and staffing or whether it's pharma and medical devices, things like that. Just a lot of the targets that people go after these days are just inundated. Like you actually said in the, in the intro to that book with a lot of messages. And the frustrating thing is that while a lot of people know their company can do something that no one else does, it doesn't mean their message is any different from everyone else's out there. So when you're working with a team trying to stand up and who's trying to find, how am I going to get my, my foot in the door in these large enterprises who are completely overwhelmed with messaging? Everyone else sounds just like me, even though I know we're that much better. What kind of tips do you give those groups? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, just diversity of touches, honestly, and to figure out what works and what breaks through the noise. I think, you know, uh, HubSpot and the sequence concept is really powerful, but a barrage of emails uh, doesn't do a lot, right? And so what we say is, you know, think of six different ways you can touch those different personas. Email, voicemail, text is a little bit too familiar in the prospecting process. Is there a print mailer you can send? We did some work with a company called Smart Action that was trying to break through the noise. And one guy, he had his coffee stained letter, you know, that would like get a laugh and get a response, right? It was a physical mailing, or I think of Mainstay that they sent a book from their co-founder. And this was a higher ed company. And they sent it to, um, you know, the provost and they sent it to the VP of enrollment management, et cetera. And I love the story they tell about, Hey, we got on a call with Kent state and they said, yeah, it's the provost, the VP of enrollment management, VP of success. We've all read your book and we're ready to go. That is a success story right there. And are you saying that they actually stained the note with coffee to make it? Yeah. Yeah. The smart action. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I haven't heard that one before, but that's great. It, it, it was a great one. I mean, and, and look, the uh, uh, one of the uh, account directors we work with at Parsable will tell the story about his 23-year-old BDR who got, I can't remember what it was, maybe GE, got the CDO on the phone or got somebody very senior by literally just following his LinkedIn posts and playing back to him the topics that he was focused on that Parsable could help solve. Right. And in an enterprise selling context, you can do that. Right. Hyper personalize. It's harder with us, you know, 5K product. But I think you really got to think about this environment as hyper personalization. The got message it. and the channel that they care about and figure out what breaks is going to break through the noise. You just do well, the same thing over and over again. You're going to lose because it's noisy. And, and one of the things that's kind of interesting, too, and we, we get into personalization kind of arguments all the time. Because I think that a lot of people view personalization in a lens that is actually maybe not as effective as they think it might be. In other words, if Brent, I'm I'm reaching out to you and all of my personalization is about you as a person, you know, even though there's no familiarity there, like if I reference your sports teams or if I reference, you know, the fact that you went to Stanford or, you know, any of these like connection points that don't really tie back to any of the real business case reasons or value that you're hoping to uncover, um, that personalization really, it, it kind of is out on an island and it doesn't lead anywhere. It does. Would you agree with that? I, I 100% agree. I mean, I think in, in a way, before I've been on the phone with you and built any rapport, it feels a little creepy, 
yeah. for people to feel like they know you. Uh, and so we always recommend what you just said is lean into the business case, follow their pause, find out what their strategic initiatives are, listen to their annual reports, align to that. Because people are going to be like, okay, they want to have a, a value-added business conversation with me. I'll do that. If you're a good seller in that first call, you're going to find out about their sports teams and their call and their kids. And you're going to remember a personal detail or two, and you're going to come back to it in the next call. And you're going to write it. If you're like me and I can't remember things I don't write down, I'm going to write it in my notes and genuinely be interested the next time, you know, how did things go with your kid's hockey tournament? You know, so remember those personal details, but after you've been in person with somebody and then it'll really land before that, it's all about the business case. And there's tons of ways to find out their business case in the current environment. You know, it's, it's funny. I have a, a little theory that I've been developing and it's that the personal personalization versus the company personalization, I think has been partially a result of bad interpretation of data. I think a lot of people early on saw things like high open rates and they went, oh, this is working. And they didn't realize that people were just opening, seeing go bears and then never getting any further. But nobody dug deeper into the data and saw, okay, they're all negative or non-responses. And so I have a hunch that it's one of those things that people kind of saw a data point and went, this is great in the presentation somewhere. But now it's all congratulations on your college and you're this and you're, you know you live on this street and this place. And I don't know about you guys. I don't do a, I don't respond to a lot of those unless there's value coming up shortly thereafter. So to your point, going after the company and understanding, even though the word personal is in personalization, you can personalize to an actual organization and that should have more resonance than anything else. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, Harry, it's a, it's a great point. Like when we talk about an authentic campaign, we do say, Hey, lead with, it's about your buyer questions, peer social proof. But the other thing we say is really the whole focus should be an invitation to a value-added conversation. And you should be explicit about that. Look, I'm reaching out because I saw you're working on this and we're working on this with other CMOs. You know, would, would it be worth 30 minutes of time to see if we could do the same thing for you? Yeah, I, I love the kind of themes and it's really an alliteration here that we've talked about on this podcast thus far because the word authenticity keeps coming up around anchoring, around account-based, <laughs> and, and really it's all leading to acceleration. So we've got our A's covered here, if you will. I'm, like I'm curious, when you think about kind of like designing these strategies to get to acceleration, can you provide a, a bit of a framework for you're moving at this speed in your sales cycle, and now you're, you're going to move much faster. Give us a sense of kind of how you lay that out in your book. Yeah. So specifically on the prospecting, and it's true. And when we talk about value plays, one thing we just want people to think about on a high is stop thinking about content as individual content assets and start putting your content into content pathways. And a content pathway should be linked to a value play. How do I drive value and what are the levels of content can also be linked to a persona, right? So now if you make that shift and then it's like, I'm just putting value-added content around a theme or on a business case to you, and I'm leading with questions. What we've seen in the prospecting motion had a number of cases, you know, where companies have been able to increase by 65, 70%. I just shared the Parsable example, Mersion, it's an immersive VR platform for soft skill training comes to mind or Torchlight, which is a caregiver platform. So 
very different industries when they shift to the product pitching and the prospecting to, hey, let's have a value-added conversation. Here's some questions we're working on that you may be working on. Here's some other people we've worked with. See very quick a shift in terms of people are much more likely to say yes to a value-added conversation because even if they never work with you, they feel like they're going to learn something. Whereas if you just pitch your product in an email, it's like, I don't want another product pitch. So you can make quick productivity gains just by anchoring on leading with value-added content that's linked to not just a content blast, because this is the other problem with HubSpot sequences. Often there are five different, con- four different titles, five different content elements. People are like, you know, it's a blur. One theme, we say on an authentic email, you know, campaign, one theme might ask it a few different ways, but one theme on one kind of business case, a couple of content elements, value-added conversation, you'll see pretty quick a pretty quick bump in your engagement rates. It's a great tip. Just really have a focus and reinforce that focus throughout a sequence, throughout a cadence, rather than hopping all over the place. You know, I'm wondering, as you say all this, you mentioned earlier, you have a, an interesting background. You come from academia. And do you think that's brought you a different perspective or a different type of success because of it? You know, we, we hear about having a beginner's mind and, and learning and everything else. Do you think that set you up to kind of approach this a little bit differently than some of the other thought leaders in the space? Um, I, I think 100%. And so I'll tell the story and then you guys can, can respond. But I, so I was trained as an academic, did a PhD, worked at the RAND Corporation, was a good researcher, was good at writing grants and bringing dollars in the door. There wasn't a reward structure. So I did, I went over to the dark side, as academics say. My first real go-to-market role, I worked at Kaplan or Higher Education Group, went to Edu Ventures, partnered with another executive, was very quickly growing a, it was my first true revenue leadership role, very quickly growing a team, sales, marketing, you know, product. And I reached out to all my buddies in business around go-to-market strategy and sales strategy. And they sent me all this stuff that was all about the product and product pricing and the battle card. And I was like, where the hell is the customer? in this. So I literally went back to the way I ran qualitative research projects at RAND, which was, I was an academic raised by educators. These people aren't going to get me. I got to be very commercial. I'm going to reach out with an email. What's in it for them? What peers am I talking to? I'd read in my conversations. I'd lead with questions. I'd recap. I'd ask a follow-on question. So I built an authentic buyer journey as a research methodology on how to draw people out, right? And engage with an academic. I got into the business world, realized that way too much of it was product pitching and said, you know what? I got a better go-to-market strategy. So yes, I, ha- I hadn't been trained in the commercial method uh, and was able to build a method that actually worked a lot better than the commercial method, product first. And now you're tearing it forward to each uh, person that's going to buy and read your book and ultimately adopt these exact same kind of go-to-market strategies. Would, would you almost refer to the book as, if you could roll time back, the kind of go-to-market strategy that you wished you had gotten from your business colleague friends? <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, I did it at Edge Ventures, and then I had two other quick growth successes. And it was the end of that. I was like, hey, there's, it, there's a method to this madness. I'm doing something right. And I had been writing it down my own plays. And then I was like, you know what? A lot of people could benefit from this. So started Winalytics and started consulting. And now the passion for me is, you know, this is not only a way to win quicker, 
it's just a much better way to spend your day. Yeah. Having value-added conversations where you're learning, adding value to your buyer rather than trying to, you know, pitch them, push them, close them, right? It's just a much better way to kind of enjoy your work. Um, and so that's why we started to talk about this concept. Authenticity wins. You will close more business and you will enjoy the work a lot more. When you talk about not having the mentality of pitch them, push them, close them kind of thing, how do you measure early success or how do you recommend people that work with you measure early success, especially when they might have a longer buying cycle? You know, It's hard to just get all the way to ROI. How do you recommend they judge if this is working early on? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, Harry. I mean, one of the things so our whole method, as you guys heard, is about shifting from your product to how buyers define success for themselves. So key output for us of any first call, even 15 minutes, is what's the buyer's success statement? And people will say, Well, how does that happen at an exhibit booth? And I'm gonna say, Well, you share three minutes on your product, and then you say, or you know, what you're doing, and then you know, if we were to have a follow-up call, what would be most important to you? 30 seconds. Like, what would you want to focus on? So honestly, what you'll, the very first thing you'll see if you start to do this is, are we getting to a success statement at the end of our first call? Can I see that in an email? I was on with Activator Dealer Solutions as a client, Bobby Coy, who's become, I've worked with him for three or four months, but a, you know, like a kindred spirit. And we both coach around follow-up emails. It's really quirky. But in a follow-up email, you can see in 30 seconds how good the discovery call was. And a good first follow-up email, the first two sentences, your why. You told me you're working on this problem and you have this gap that we can solve. So the first thing you'll see in terms of change behavior that shifts the whole arc of land and expand is how good is your team at getting to a buyer success statement? If they're not getting to a buyer success statement consistently, they're probably still product pitching. Boy, that is a great statement. In fact, I go immediately internal and without giving too much away about our own processes here at, at Science, one of the, we, we call this buyer focus qualification and, and we call it NOTE and it stands for the acronym need opportunity team and effect. And the most important part of NOTE is effect. If you really think about, and, and our own sales team members practice this, but effect is really pulling a, a client or would-be client in tight and saying, hey, you know what? If we're six months out into the future from where we are right now, and we will have had mutual success together, what you would define as success, what effects will we have achieved? What does that look like to you? And it's it's so crystallizing because, you know, the future is abstract. <laughs> I, I always like to say to people, you know, did anyone on New Year's Day of January 2020 have the slightest idea what they were in store for the last two years. Like, of course not, right? Like the future is unknown in so many different ways. So the act of pulling the future into the present, which is concrete, which is tangible, is so powerful because it's it's asking people to, to co-create together. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. I mean, one of the Kristen Brenna, who I'm just going to put this link in for you guys to listen to whenever you want. I Six years ago, I met her and I've worked with her at a number of companies now. Just an awesome seller, a top performer almost o- overnight, every place she goes. And it's because of what you just said. Her whole shtick is, hey, if we were working together and I were to wave a magic wand in 12 months, what would be success for you? She's just getting him to envision a different future because at the end of the day, 
we lose in selling most often to inertia. It's painful to do something new and we got to pay for the privilege to do that. So you got to really help them imagine what are those effects going to be that are worth me moving myself and my team and budget around to get to that future state. So the instinct is, is dead on. You got to help them envision a better future. You know, I, I really love that, that whole approach, just really saying, you know, one of the most common things that we hear at Science and I've heard throughout my career as well is just, we need to hit this number. We need to get this many meetings. We need to get this much pipeline. We need to close this many deals. And the best salespeople, the best SDRs, their response was usually, if we hit that number, what are you going to do with that number? You know, what, where are you going to take that and present it to the board and get more budget? Are you going to take those extra profits and, and grow the, your department 50%? What, what happens next? Because I don't, I don't think this number is what your board or what your shareholders are waiting for. So how does this connect to the end goal? And what's amazing is when you talk about the number, people talk for 30 seconds. When you talk about the impact, they talk for 30 minutes. It's a totally different conversation. You get so much more information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I love that. And it's, it's, I mean, I think what you're speaking to, Harry, and it connects to what Eric said is at the end of the day, we, we know this, emotional uh, buying is an emotional process as much as anything. And when you hit on that emotion and the things we've been talking about today, the buyer success statement, and then Eric, your stories, right, about peers, those are the two strongest ways to build some kind of emotional connection that moves it beyond this is, you know, X, Y, and Z product capability. So I love that is really when people lean into co-developing, it's because they feel an emotional connection. And what are some For of sure. the instruction sets or how do you consult to companies to really get them to get them move beyond this habit? This you use the word inertia in terms of prospects, but I really think of it as corporate inertia that sets in on this is just the way we've always done it. It feels comfortable. And so therefore, you know, product pitching just it ends up like backsliding, doesn't it? Yeah. I, one section of the book, we talk about how the pullback, how strong the pullback to product pitching is. Continual, right? It's we're, we're very familiar with it. It's the same in every conversation. With Every buyer has slightly different goals. So recapping that takes energy. Uh, our customers ask us for demos. They ask us for product sell sheets. So we have a whole set of deal velocity plays, which is this idea of a buyer success statement at the beginning and at the end is their next committed action should be in your follow-up email. It should be in your deck. It should be in your proposal. But the other thing, Eric, I'm starting to realize, so we got this first book that's about playbooks and process. I've already started doing revenue leader stories for the next book, which is how do you build the team for to have authentic conversations? I've been reading Blink. Yeah, I've been reading. Book. Yeah, it is a great book and reading um, The Elephant and The Rider. I don't know if you've heard that. It's a similar theme, yeah. but one of the ahas for me is that we're actually not wired for authentic conversations. Hmm. Cognitive bias is, you know, we were wired for, we have a reinforcement bias. And so one of the things I'm realizing is a lot of our method is a team-based process. Six to nine months of going through and just re-anchoring and hearing from your team, individual coaching, but then team-based coaching, because you got to kind of rewire the brain, right? To shift from my product to then it just becomes comfortable to ask questions, comfortable with ambiguity, comfortable getting to a buyer success statement. So it's not like you can just tell people to do it and they do it. You got to structure a process to get them to the other side of a different set of behaviors that then become self-reinforcing. 
So you're almost winding them up and pointing them in, in the direction that you need them to go as part of the process, whether that's bringing you to somebody else or whether that's even winding them up to then ask you a certain question. You're kind of, it's, it's a lot of priming, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a good, good word for it. I think priming, but then I, I literally just think the practice, the practice, the practice, the practice. We, when I get resistant team members on a call, senior people folding their arms and, you know, think they know everything about their industry. And I, what we've just started to say is, you know, let, if you follow a sports team, so let's say you're in Tampa and it's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or the, or the, or the Rays and they didn't have a playbook, how serious would you think they were? And if they didn't practice their playbook or they or practice was optional for the top performers, how serious would you think they were? Okay. I mean, so how, on, how serious are you about your go-to-market motion? <laughs> Tom Brady's out in the huddle on his knee drawing the plays in the in the turf, right? Because <laughs> that's the way he rolls <laughs> and has for 20 years. Absolutely. Not at I mean, all. I mean, you know what's funny about that and your your Bucks example is is Tom Brady is one of these guys that he's such at a different level because each play that has been rehearsed and practiced to death, and this guy is like renowned for being a stickler. Like he's the kind of quarterback that says, I'm gonna hit you on the back shoulder with this particular play when I see the defender doing like this type of shading. You know what I mean? Like it is insane the amount of practice that goes into his success on Sundays. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it is practice, practice, practice. And what we say on this point, uh, Harry, about I don't, the, the priming, but then the practice as a whole, literally, I mean, we say commit to an hour a week, 3 to 5% of your time, individual coaching, team-based coaching, an hour a week, and you will be amazed at how quickly you can start to move down the path. But then the reality is there are different plays you have to string together. And we say to get started, just pick two or three plays that you want to work on. Maybe it's better buyer discovery to get to that success statement. Maybe it's ending with, we got 10 minutes, the time. Can we just stop, make sure we have time to hear what you're seeing is most valuable and what we'll do about it next. Maybe it's the follow-up email that connects the first to the second meeting. You know, maybe it's the handoff from your closing sales team to customer success. How well are we documenting not just the closing goal, but all the goals that they talked about in the discovery process? Just what are the two plays you guys can practice as a team or individually? Commit to those when you're better at that, move on to the next one. But practice, as you said, Eric, just commit to practicing all the time because you don't want to uh, role play to your customers, right? You role yeah. play internally and then you execute with your customers. Yeah, there's another author out there. Oh my God, I'm I'm blanking on his name, but he wrote the 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 book on kind of perfect words to use, and and one of the emphasis points that he put out there was the worst time to think about what you're about to say to any would be customer prospect is the moment before you say it, <laughs> which is so true, you know. But nobody thinks of it that that way, right? Like. Mm. Especially when when we have gregarious, um, extroverted, you know, arguably very charming salespeople, and this happens at the top of the funnel just as easily as it happens mid or bottom of the funnel, who frankly just want to wing it, who want to get out there and just kind of freelance and say whatever they're going to say, right? Yes. Yeah. The the freelancer, I I think it's a 
you know, the heroic salesperson that could sell ice to the Eskimo, I think that's a dying breed. There are some that can, can they're good enough to keep doing it, but it, we just see it over and over again. The ones that commit to team-based learning uh, win, because if you think about, let's just take a typical company and you've got three of these value props and you're selling to four personas and you have three market segments you're selling into that are main ones. You've got 25 different conversations very quickly. The only way to figure that out is hear from your team members on, hey, I'm going to sell into financial services. It's about a leadership use case, right? And the CHRO is a sponsor. Like what stories work for you? What questions work for you? That team-based learning, it's the only way to win in this environment that demands hyper-personalization is learning every day from your customers, from your market, from your team members. It's a great piece of advice. You know, there's one more topic that I wanted to cover, just something you mentioned earlier, got me thinking a little bit, storytelling. You talked about the impact of storytelling versus just describing something. And before you hopped on, Eric and I were actually just talking about that your book is very approachable because it takes the form of telling the stories of over 20 different companies that that actually use these practices and using those as an example. So it's very easy to visualize and imagine doing that ourselves as the readers. So can you talk just a little bit more about the impact of storytelling and why you chose that method versus explaining just here's how to do things? Yeah. And and this, I got to give credit to David Meerman Scott, who we were mentioning that kind of just got me going in that direction. It's because stories of what we're talking about help you visualize, right? And it builds a, an emotional connection and a good story. And this I learned from David and now figuring out how to go deeper on it it starts with some kind of conflict, right? There's some kind of tension, two different possible outcomes in it that really sucks you in. And so I think it's that uh, a story just makes it a lot easier to imagine yourself in that role uh, and imagine how you would game it out. And so if you start with a story, it can lead to the concept and then you can write out the concept, right? It's just much more powerful. Um, one thing I'll, I'll just share on that is it is important to think about your stories and what personas they align to. And I was sharing with you guys at the outset this, I, I love uh, Augmetics, which is a you know medical note-taking device, right? That just automates that process, makes doctors a lot more productive. You can tell a different story to different participants and different hospitals. So they will start in the general practice where it really is about mitigating physician burnout. These people are overwhelmed every day. And so you're doing them a solid, right? Uh, And then you can go from there to a wealthier practice where it's about really high touch service because you don't have to take the notes, right? You can totally focus on the the patient. And then you can go from there, you get 20 or 30 um, kind of doctors using it. You go to the CFO, and you tell a story about doctor physician productivity. So when you think about stories and we practice stories on team calls all the time, it's like, okay, this is, you're selling into that use case to this persona, what's your best story? And do you have two for every every value play? And do you have a couple per persona? So stories have to land with the persona, have to, and they have to be able to imagine themselves in that story, but it's, much, a much more appealing way to sell for sure. You know, I think one of the most underrated part of stories too is it's, 
it's someone else's truth. And the fact that it's someone else's truth means that there's a lot of people out there that, that talk about selling into pain, identifying pain, you know, what it was the person's pain that they they're going through and bringing that up. And here's the thing about pain. If you come full frontal, if you come direct in addressing somebody's pain, the human instinct, I don't care level of title is to get defensive. Yeah. Right. It's to, and let's be honest, right? Like when we're starting conversations, people's guard is already way up. It's way up. And so putting people on the defensive whose guard is already way up is possibly the most ineffective strategy I could imagine. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 hundred percent. And so brings us back to your strategy of what's the effect in six months. Kristen Brenna talks about, you know, the magic wand. I mean, whatever you call it, the success statement, the alternative future, hundred percent, like, helping people imagine the future positive outcome, most powerful form of selling without a doubt. I love it. Well, we could probably go on for hours on the, just this topic alone. This has been rich and vibrant conversation, Brent. Yeah, really um, enjoyed it. Yeah. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find the Revenue Acceleration Playbook or anything else that you'd care to let us connect with or otherwise engage with you. Yeah, yeah. So I would just two resources I'd send you to authenticitywins.com. Harry mentioned that. You can go there and you can download the forward from David Meerman Scott in the first chapter for free. You can pre-order the book there, find out a little bit more about the book. You can go to our website, winalytics.com. Uh a deeper dive on the book and and on us. So I would send you to either of those. And I always just close with you know, authenticity wins. And we're on a mission to help people be more successful and be more authentic in the process and really live into who they are. Love that. In a, in a world of tricks and tips and tactics, it's great to see some some messaging around authenticity. So really appreciate you joining us today. I know our listeners are going to value it a lot. And uh, congratulations on your new book launch. Yeah, thank you both. <laughs>